0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today I'll be talking to Michael Mascarenas, the editor of Lessons in Environmental Justice, From Civil Rights to Black Lives Matter and Idle No More, published this year by SAGE. Dr. Mascarenas, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
1: No problem. Uh, to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background, including how you came to be working on the area of environmental justice, and what inspired you to put together this book?
2: Oh, that's a it's a big question. Um, so, um, I'd say I'm a sort of f- a first generation um, person of color, and um, uh, really, sort of from a very young age, been sort of aware of. Inequities in the environment, um, you know, places where I lived, uh, even where I worked, um, these have always been sort of front and center for me, and and there have been challenges and sort of presented barriers from for uh, for me in, in, in life, and so I think when I um, started to to be, become educated and 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 you know taking um, my undergraduate degrees in environmental science and and then my masters. I was always interested in questions of justice and access and the distribution of, of natural resources. And so um, this sort of became really kind of a natural path for me to to finish up a, a PhD in sociology and then, um, uh, you know, really look at uh, issues of equity around water and water justice. That's really been my area of interest. And, you know, my, my PhD was, was looking at um, indigenous communities in southwestern Ontario. It's it's close to where I, I, I'm from. Um, and really looking at neoliberal policies and how that uh, has it impacted not only their sort of uh, sovereignty and decision-making sort of authority over natural resources, but also their health and welfare as well. And I really became interested, again, in, in issues of water distribution. So I, I wrote a, another book looking at... Um, water welfare in in other words uh, how people get access to to water uh, in sort of what we call the developing world Um, it became you know quite obvious to me that many people in the the so-called developing world really get their water through um, humanitarian efforts of some level at some level and that what I call new humanitarianism has a particular kind of um, uh, formation if you will Um, Many many nonprofits are, are, are large. Many nonprofits um, take donations from large corporations um, to provide goods and services to people who need that. Um, but that also, pretend, you know, also um, sets them up to 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 kind of navigate some tricky waters. Um, and so um, I was looking at how and what the conditions um, of water service was in certain in certain areas. Um, and you know, my last book is really looking at Flint and Detroit and, and and Michigan more generally and austerity and the way in which austerity is is really um, uh, austerity is really be, be, being um, it's a, it's a policy that is disproportionately harming uh, communities of color around public health services and access to basic uh, r- basic rights like water. Um, in part because uh, these decisions are, making, are being made strictly around financial or economic decisions, which tend to harm people who are poor and those disproportionately are people of color. And so that leads me to this kind of book, on, on this edited book on um, environmental justice. And it, it's a burgeoning field over the last 30 years or so. And, and I really wanted, uh, and it's also a topic of particular interest for a lot of people, and I wanted to present a, um, a piece of scholarship that was a collaborative effort that um, provided students in particular, but people who were trying to access the field with entry points that were accessible, um, that sort of, um, if you will, broke down the, the kind of complex uh, uh, history and, uh, of the field. Uh, and made it accessible to, to people.
1: Uh, so, you know, this is, as I think we mentioned, an edited uh, volume. So you've got a lot of other folks writing the, the chapters here. And in the introduction, you describe the assembling of this set of contributors as a, sort of an act of justice within academia itself. So I was hoping you could say a little more about how you selected your contributors and, you know, what you were hoping to accomplish by putting together the particular set of people that you got to
2: write for this book? Yeah, that's that's a good question. You know, I, I really, I wanted to change, uh, to some extent, the people that were speaking about this field to the extent that I, I, I could. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about um, who would be a part of this volume I wanted um, scholars of color I wanted uh, it to be represented in terms of gender Um, and I wanted also uh, in particular I wanted to have folks who have not been heard of so indigenous scholars for example um, was one I really wanted to make sure we had representation in the book so you know the book is is of the introduction is 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 by by Bob Bullard many people see him as a sort of father of of environmental justice. Um, And I thought that was sort of fitting that he did lead the the book, but I also wanted this book to be an opportunity for uh, new scholars who were presenting kind of new theories or new methods on how to understand environmental justice outcomes. Um, And in that sense, we have a, um, Sarah R- uh, Rijos, for example, uh, uh, Christina um, uh, Fer- Ferreira, um, who, are, who are newer uh, scholars, but looking at um, air pollution and um, uh, prison, lo- prison um, uh, condi- conditions in prisons in kind of new and novel ways. So I, you know, I really wanted to make sure that um, we weren't just hearing from uh, ac- academics. We were hearing from uh, scholar activists uh, that were passionate, that were um, and changing how we thought about this discipline. I also wanted to make this uh, book um, ha- have a pedagogical um, purpose, and so I asked um, many of the the uh, we asked all of the uh, um, all the contributors to think about exercises, teaching exercises that might help. Um, uh, explain or demonstrate the type of theories uh, they're trying to advance. And so each chapter sort of has this little, a few questions, which really, uh, I think, uh, uh, encourage students to, 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 to do some, you know, their ex- ex- an exercise that might help them explain these, these theories being presented.
1: Great. And you actually just kind of touched on the next few questions that I have here to ask. So no, no, that's good. So, you know, to ask you to go into a little more detail on a few things. Um, first, like you said, you've got a, a range of contributors from people who were part of environmental justice scholarship right from the the beginning to, you know, newly emerging uh, folks. And our conceptions of what environmental justice is have evolved uh, over the years. So could you say a little more about how environmental justice is being conceptualized and theorized uh, in your book and, uh, you know, the kind of balance between the different uh, points of view that different uh, people are bringing to it versus, you know, having a, a kind of
2: a coherent book? Right. That's, I mean, that's a good question too. Um, you know, there there's a sort of general, I think, Acceptance uh, that you know environmental justice really comes out of a uh, a combination of, of sort of the civil rights movement and the anti-toxics campaign um, in in the in the sixties and seventies and and I think uh, and and that that is there's that's that historical kind of beginning is there's there's certainly a lot of sort of truth to that. Um, one I, th- I think one of the ways in which the and the, the movement has really expanded in terms of thinking about you know where where what what exactly is justice is it distributive justice is it procedural you know can we talk about- co- that corrective aspects of justice as well historically also e j has really tried to um correlate let's say um um disproportionality, so, for example, a toxic waste site, and its location to particular groups of people, so people of color. And the idea is to sort of prove methodologically uh, disproportionality, and then with the intention to sort of lobby government for more fairer laws in these types of communities. And that's been tremendously successful. and you know, it's created environmental legislation at the federal level, at the at state levels as well. But what we're seeing also is there's there's certainly a limit to that sort of approach. One, it kind of looks, you know, at at, at environmental justice outcomes like the sightings, let's say, of toxic waste sites uh, or the spills of, of of dangerous chemicals as accidents, and. Some of them may be simply accidents, but, you know, we're increasingly seeing the role of the state, whether through deregulation or, or not policing uh, um, toxic polluters, as actually being implicated in creating unjust um, situations. And so, you know, when, when activists are putting this data together and showing that they're harmed but when the state is also involved in this, who do people go to? And so what you know environmental justice thinkers are actually trying to push a little bit more, I think is is to look at things like racial capitalism or to look at um, a government as an active agent in environmental justice outcomes. And so work is sort of being advanced in that sense to what we say to be more critical, um, to look at the role of states and institutions, to look at the role of business, um, to look at the role of um, government and federal policies as well, and to think about this environmental justice as as not simply an outcome but as a racial formation that continues to harm people um, of color, predominantly, and poor people as well. And that, um, you know, that's a more critical way of thinking about EJ. And I think it's a really important uh, direction that the the, the scholarship and research is taking.
1: Great. Uh, So then to go back to another point that you've already kind of touched on, you said that you designed this book in part as a book that could be used in the classroom. And I found out about it because uh, the day after our spring schedules were published and I'm on the schedule to teach uh, an EJ class, your publisher emailed me you know pitching the book as a, a course text. And in some of our conversation before we recorded, you mentioned that you've uh, been using this book in your own teaching. So could you tell us more about, how the book has been working in a, a classroom setting for students that may have, you know, not a lot of exposure to at least the academic aspect of environmental justice.
2: Well, the, the book is actually, um, you know, when you, when you put these things together and you make a call to uh, authors and y- you, know, you don't know what the finished product's going to be. Uh, and, and I, you know, I've been on lots of, of sort of collaborative efforts and, I I am I'm really happy with how this book has, has turned out. Uh, I mean, I think um, the chapters, all of them, are are very succinct. They're very informative and they're very accessible. And it it you know it it, it works well with the kind of classroom pace, if you will. You know, the, the students are reading ten to twelve pages per class. And the information, you know, we spent a lot of time editing the book to make sure that the information was, again, accessible, but not sort of, um, but, but not cutting things that didn't matter. And the, I think what we've done is we've really successfully shown um, like multiple different ways of thinking about environmental injustice. So we talk about environments of injustice. You know, we introduce students to the concept and, 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 and how it's been framed in the past. We talk about methodology and methodological debates. We spend, there's a few chapters on uh, the regulatory apparatus of the state and, and the way in which that has played a role in environmental justice in the country. And then we look at particular types of cases. And I think the case study approach is really informative in, in terms of how students are coming to understand environmental justice. You know, it's where we work, where we, where we uh, play, um, where we're housed. But it's also things like where we pray and, you know, where people are incarcerated. Um, and, and so we're expanding this notion of thinking about environments that we um, uh, inhabit every every day. Um, and I think that's been really, really informative for them. So, you know, we just finished uh, a chapter on, on, on the criminal justice system. And, and how that, that plays a role, um, particularly uh, today where, you know, we're in a kind of era of, of colorblind racism. And so we spent a lot of time sort of um, uh, making sure uh, particular theories are introduced and introduced in a way that's very accessible um, through kind of these you know, particular case studies. And it, it's really been, I found, teaching this book, really satisfying. I think, you know, the students are having, um, are getting, I think, uh, um, uh, are becoming really interested in, in, in the, in the areas they're, they're, they're kind of asking really informative questions. I think, um, for many of them, this is really a, a opening experience. Like they didn't really think about all of these different ways in which people have, um, uneven, um, um, uh uneven experiences and i think uh so we've been really really happy with how how the book has has been played out so yeah I'm, I'm i'm i think you'll you'll i hope you'll have the same experience
1: awesome yeah and so this the book is is designed with a, a classroom in mind but it's not just like a textbook you know it's not just for Students, so could you say a bit about for someone who's not teaching an environmental justice course but is you know interested in the topic? Um, you know, what's the the value that they'll get out of reading this book?
2: I think for someone who is just interested in this, I think what the book as a as a sort of subject matter, I think what the book does is it provides them with entry points. It provides them with. Um, uh, a historical, um, analysis or that, that helps them that introduces, you know, what, what sort of introduces some of the theoretical concepts in a way that's accessible. I think that's the biggest contribution to this book. Um, you know, it also makes connections that aren't, um, that are hard, difficult to make. So, you know, in the beginning of the book, we sort of really draw a, a historical kind of um, pattern um, to from from civil from this kind of civil rights and and the anti toxic campaigns to Black Lives Matter and Idle No More to see to help people see that you know what we're seeing on the streets today, the 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 kind of protests that people are engaged in today is not something new, there's a particularity to it that, people, that the book, I think, points out to, but also to see this in its historical context. And I think that's really important uh, contribution that the book makes, that this, no, this notion of environmental justice as a kind of growing and continuing struggle that scholars are trying to understand and activists are actively engaged in. And it's the movement, I think, that this book captures quite well.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, uh, and that was something that I noticed as well. It's you know right there in your your subtitle where you mentioned some of these movements, and you say some of the um, the contributors that you've got are scholar activists, not just uh, scholars. So I wanted to see if you could say a little more about what you see as the relationship between scholars and academia, working on EJ topics and activist movements uh, that are kind of out on the front lines uh, fighting on these issues.
2: Um, so the relationship between the two, uh, you know, I think there is, um, I would say this is quite, quite often a, a disconnect between kind of activists and and scholars trying to write this stuff, so you know, for for me, um, there there are there are the the academics who who don't sort of immerse themselves in the lived condition, sort of miss the nuances between about uh, regarding how environmental justice actually plays out in some of these communities, um, and so there's been. a not, you know, there has been a tendency to to armchair theorize in in this field and, and in other fields as well. And you know, that to some extent silences the voices of of activists. It also t- tends to be um, um, it doesn't p- capture the nuance of some of these movements. And I think what scholar activists are trying to do, is to not simply understand what's going on in these communities. That's important. But they're also trying to empower these communities. And that, in many ways, is, is sort of the shoe that sort of, I think, dropped in the environmental justice movement. When you think about what, you know, what, what Martin Luther King Jr. and others... Uh, who are the sort of pioneers in in, in the civil rights movement? We're we're talking about we're really talking about not only you know uh, making sure that people had economic and political rights, but that equity was actually served, empowerment was given back to the communities. And I think scholar activists really work on that last piece to not only capture and understand this for public consumption and, and academic uh, uh, theories, but to also instill or to cultivate partnerships that will move environmental justice fights forward. And I think that's the really important uh, aspect of that. It, this, you know, that type of work, the scholar activist work does, does take time. I mean, I have been uh, writing and, and interviewing people and, and being, you know, actually being in, in, De, in Flint and, De, and Detroit, since 2014 and i'm still writing you know six years later about this stuff so the scholar activist kind of um work takes time and you know as you know being being an academic you're constantly pushed to publish and and so many of us don't have the luxury of, of that time and so that tends to i think you know, really brush against, uh, you know, the 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 stresses of academia, and so we don't often, you know, um, get, you know, deep, thick re- descriptions of, of of movement organization and coalition building and 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 uh, in the way in which we really need to to understand um, how environmental justice plays out. And so that's the real tension between sort of academia and scholar activism. Um, is the really you know the, the demands of academia that sort of don't allow scholars to immerse themselves in communities for extended periods of time to, to kind of do the work that, that needs to be done to to really help um, um, activists um, make, help activists move their 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 fights forward.
1: Yeah, I think that that's really, uh, really true. Uh, So then moving on to another subject here, I was really interested to see there's a whole section of the book that focuses on methodology uh, in environmental justice research. And that's something that I'm always trying to get my students to understand is that environmental justice isn't just about learning a set of examples of injustices, uh, but it's also about being able to apply skills in things like GIS or interviewing or other research methods to dealing with real problems. So what do you think are the most important methodological considerations for people working on environmental justice topics these days?
2: Well I think there are what's really interesting I think today is is the sort of advancements we have that that we didn't sort of have at the beginning of the movement. So you know you have you have Python, you have GIS that really um uh, I think, provide students and, and um, researchers with new ways to visualize and to uh, demonstrate uh, inequity. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's been this underlying tension of how best to measure uh, inequity. And, and there are multiple ways to, to do that. Um you know, it, I, I think what we're trying to understand, and I think what we've we've done done very well is to sort of um, correlate um, the or become better, I think at identifying the right type of uh, um, unit of analysis to understand certain, um, um, exposures. So, you know, if we're looking at, say, air exposure, for example, we we know pretty well that you know something quite close, like like a like a zip code, is probably a really useful m- unit of analysis. You know? We also also know that the way in which um, these pollutants emit themselves, that we need to also understand that we can't simply use. Uh, um, census track. we actually have to sort of uh, project how these things, sorts of uh, chemicals emit emit themselves. So we might have to, you know, use some sort of contingent method that kind of understands something that's weighted. So we're getting, you know we're, you know, we're finding out the limits of sort of the way we've done this in the past. And we're also looking at and understanding new types of, of, of methods, which I think have been very productive. We're also kind of understanding the limits of kind of the regular uh, the regulatory apparatus as well. So, you know, a lot of things that are emitted are in the air from, let's say, diesel fuel. The particulate matters are so small that they're not actually picked up by the apparatuses that are used, the, the, the technologies that are used to measure this stuff. So through the work that we're doing in these communities, we're actually um, questioning the uh, regulatory standards that are being put in place to assess health outcomes. You know, another interesting thing in, in the Flint and Detroit case was a lot of the regulators were saying, well, you know, the water meets government standards. and But that wasn't the question that activists were really concerned with. They didn't care whether, you know, there was five five parts per billion lead in the water or less. That's the standard. They wanted to know whether, the, whether their water was safe to drink. And so I think our research is really pushing these ideas around um, what are the right methodological tools, what are the right units of analysis to understand the exposures that people are, are, are experiencing today. And I think we're really pushing those boundaries in important ways. Um, we're not only understanding exposure in terms of, you know, well, exposure to water, exposure to air, exposure to kind of home uh, toxins in the home, but we're also understanding the intersectionality of these, right? So if people are impacted, let's say, in terms of um, asthma, uh, because of, because they're living close to a, a refinery um, or close to a port, we also are understanding that asthma actually means, uh, might mean other Uh, might lead to other environmental justices in terms of it might mean that you have to take uh, the days off of work. So you might have a loss of income. Children might miss school. So there might be a a lack of learning opportunities. And we're trying to also understand the ways in which um, exposure to to toxins or or bad air or bad water are are also um, having intersectional or multiple cumulative impacts. And we're trying to understand that as well in terms of understanding and and pushing through or moving forward uh, EJ methodologies.
1: Great. Yeah. Lots, lots more important research uh, that we still need to do on those. Uh, So the book has 18 chapters plus the introduction and conclusions. So we're not going to, you know, take time to go through every one of them uh, here, but I was hoping you could just kind of whet our listeners appetite a bit uh, by picking out one or two examples of uh, chapters or uh, things that came up uh, in the book that you found particularly interesting or surprising uh, as an experienced scholar in the field.
2: Wow, that's a good question. Um, I think and I unfortunately don't have the book in front of me. <laughs> um, what I would say is um, one of the most interesting things I found about uh, the book is a chapter on Jill Harrison's book, a chapter on on uh, the regulatory apparatus and where she was doing an ethnography of, um, of, of uh, managers at the Environmental Protection Agency, the United States Environmental Protection Agency. And what I, you know, one of the questions, I think, in the environmental justice community is we've known inequality. We we know and we have measured environmental injustices um, for 40 years now. There's been a strong movement um, and there's lots of laws at the federal and state level. But we also know that race is still a predictor of where toxic waste sites are located in this country. So we know that in spite of all the information, all of the methodological advances and the theoretical application and environmental laws, that we haven't really changed the exposure of people of color in this country. In fact, recent, recent work that I've been doing shows that um, using the, the, most, the, the last census, the 2010 census, that uh, those exposures have actually increased. And so the question is why? Why is this continuing to happen? And Jill Harrison's chapter, I think, is fascinating because she does an ethnography of middle managers, um, uh, people who are passionate about environmental justice at the at the EPA. And she really exposes, I think, to some extent, the the not only the kind of personal prejudices prejudices and biases that that middle managers will have, but also the kind of colorblind, um, perspectives that they bring to, um, uh, to environmental justice efforts, which are, I think, a real um, which really have stymied the ability for the, for the uh, agency to um, push or be an advocate for uh, communities of color. The other chapter, I think, that I really uh, in- enjoy um, or is I think really interesting is, is uh, the, the chapter on air quality in um, Long Beach. And it, the chapter is really interesting because it does talk about asthma and the exposure that uh, Latinx communities have uh, in, in Southern California. But it also spends a lot of time explaining the intersectionalities of this. So the multiple ways in which young children who are exposed to bad air impacts not just the children's health and development, but the family itself. And I already said this, but one of the really interesting things is the advancements that the author is making around air quality is that she's been able to show that these really micro-level particles that are being emitted by diesel fuel are not being detected by the instruments that we're using. In other words, we're being impacted by chemicals in the air that we're not measuring so there's exposures that we have or these communities in particular are being exposed to that we're not even aware of yet and again that really is a fascinating chapter because it's it's really kind of just touching the i think the tip of the iceberg of all of these exposures that we're that we as a uh, you know a population are are being exposed to that we are not even measuring yet
1: great so yeah of, that oh. which is
2: kind of scary <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah yeah definitely but hopefully everyone will, will check out the book and learn some more about that. So that brings us to our final question that we always ask all of our guests, which is what are you working on next? What kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out?
2: Well, um, so I am still writing this book on, on Flint and, and Detroit, and I'm, I'm looking at, and I'm calling it, I think, Thirsty for Environmental Justice. And it really looks at urban austerity and the, and the, the way in which policies that have, um, that have looked at sort of fiscal um, constraining of, of, of policies at the urban level in particular are a form of environmental justice for particular communities. You know, we, after the, the sort of Great Recession, many communities, particularly urban communities of color, um, were, were basically insolvent. You know, we, I think we've had 13 or 14 uh, bankruptcies, of, of um, municipal bankruptcies, so Valerjo and Stockton and California, and um, Detroit is the kind of most infamous one. Um, but the book looks at the ways in which these policies, so it looks at the really the power of the, the way in which policies that are Deemed to be economic policies, right? We're gonna we're gonna cut the budgets of municipalities. Are really policies that harm people of color? And what I want to show in this book is the ways in which communities of color, like Flint and Detroit, who suffered from either lead poisoning of water, or in in the Detroit's case, they had the highest, uh, his, the, the 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 largest. Um, outbreak of hepatitis A in the, in the history of the United States as a result of water shutoffs, that these crises were actually A, man-made, B, were predictable, and then sort of C, didn't have to happen. And But also that these, what, what is going on in communities, not only in those, but communities like Milwaukee and, and Chicago and other communities of color uh, uh, everywhere is part of a larger kind of project uh, that has to do with the privatization of public resources. And in particular, again, I'm, look, I'm looking at water. But the ways in which the privatization of these uh, um, um, sort of p- public services are are really harming people of color. Um, in, in part because of the ways in which uh, the great Great Recession has really harmed these communities in terms of their uh, ability to sort of weather some of these new uh, fiscal crises. So I'm trying to, to show that what you see in, in, in these cities of color is a particular type of conjuncture coming together of environmental inequality and fiscal austerity. And what drives a lot of this uh, re- reform, I argue, is sort of the racialization of some of these cities. So let me give you an example of that. In 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 Detroit, the uh, emergency manager was put in place to run run the city. And the emergency manager came in and said, you know, Detroit, least these, you know, Detroiters are basically. I think he called them um, uh, something along the lines of, of lazy, uh, lazy, and and uh, he might have called them dumb, lazy, and, and something and <laughs> a couple other things. But the the point is that the that the way in which austerity works is it blames it uses colorblind sort of jargon to blame people for uh, the fiscal insolvency of the cities. when really, you know it, it's not about black leadership or the inability for people of color to balance their, their budgets, but it's really about global capitalism and the ways in which deinvestment and deindustrialization has really harmed a lot of, of these cities. And so, But what, what happens with kind of urban austerity policies and the way in which it's advanced, it blames the communities for their own, um, for their own fiscal and, and financial problems. And, and in that sense, this kind of colorblind movement in these, in these cities is a different form of environmental justice. It's not about correlating a toxic waste site with people of color. It's also about sort of financial insolvency and how, That harms particular communities and advances sort of the investment and development in in other communities, white suburbs, for example. So that's what I'm working on um, right now.
1: All right. Well, we'll be looking forward to that coming out. And maybe we'll have you back on the podcast uh, once that book is is finished. So, uh, Dr. Mascarenos, thank you for coming on our show today.
2: Thank you very much for, for having me.
1: And listeners, you just heard a conversation with Michael Mascarenas, the editor of Lessons in Environmental Justice, From Civil Rights to Black Lives Matter and Idle No More, published this year by SAGE.